These days, uh, cruise ships have a bad reputation. You'll recall that they became petri dishes for uh, for COVID-19. But there was a time when a particular cruise ship set out to be a crucible for ideas and ideals. In 1926, a ship set off from New York on a world cruise with 500 college students on board. It was a grand educational experiment called the Floating University. Perhaps learning about the world could happen through experience rather than soaking up what authority figures chose to teach you. Now, the fortunate student stopped at nearly 50 ports and met world leaders. I'll give you a roll call of the remarkable selection a little later. And they also got up to some drunken mischief, as students have wanted to do. But our next guest who was sitting right here in front of me, is about to argue that the whole exercise was ultimately about uh, tracing, reinforcing the expansion of American world power. Historian Tamsin Peach, 10 years before the mast, Tamsin, doing the research on this. Her book is The Floating University, Experience, Empire and the Politics of Knowledge. Tamsin is... Associate Professor and Director of the Australian Centre for Public History at our neighbouring institution, the UTS. First of all, welcome. But could you give me a a snapshot of this eight-month journey, just so we can see how fortunate these, these students really were? So on board this ship, as you said, were 500 passengers. Uh, 350 of them were students in the end because they needed to take uh, some extra tourists uh, to make up numbers at the end. But 450 of of these passengers were men and 50 were women, which becomes relevant to the fate of the voyage a little later. And there were also um, 50 or so professors that were to teach them their studies while they were at sea. And the ship was to uh, dock, you know, as you said, over over 50 ports. And while they were in port, they were to go on excursions to the local sites, to be hosted by the local universities, <laughs> often to, to meet the, the leaders um, of the city or the, or the country in which they were, were visiting. Tamsin, um, I find it a... A, a terrifying thought to think of 50 professors on a single vessel. <laughs> well, so did the students, but they had their own ways of getting back, which was just to go AWOL for much of the time. Now, we should also remind the listener that this was a very significant moment in time, wasn't it? A lot of things were going on. That's right. It was just after the First World War and societies in Europe were seeking to reconstruct themselves. America had come out of that war, the global economic power, and the American dollar could purchase an enormous amount overseas. And at the same time, all of the colonial world, Southeast Asia uh, in particular, and, and India and, and colonial Africa are fermenting with, um, with nationalism. Uh, and at the same time, China is in the midst of a civil war um, and there are growing dictatorships emerging in Europe as well. Well, the Philippines are trying to kick the US out, aren't they? At the they're moment. trying hard. They're not going to succeed for a while, but they're trying. And Portugal is in the aftermath of a coup. That's right. Okay. Now, they meet some notable figures of the time. This is what I promised you would reveal. Well, there's Mussolini. There's the King of Siam, which is Thailand. (laughs) There's Gandhi, a whole uh, 
tribe of students go overland to try and they end up tracking down Gandhi at a railway station, Philip. How <laughs> wonderfully appropriate. They dance the Charleston with the Queen of Spain. It's a, it's a, it is a roll call. There's also a Pope. There's a Pope, of course. You forgot the Pope. How could I? Pope Pius XI. 11th. <laughs> Not just any Pope Pius. <laughs> now, there are photographs in the book of the student passengers uh, being driven off to various locations in cavalcades of cars. They weren't sort of doing it on the cheap, were they? No, they weren't doing it on the cheap, but neither were they the really elite American students. They were sort of upper middle class students. And if you compare the fees that they were paying to those of a student attending, say, the University of Pennsylvania, it's about the same. So it's uh, relatively affordable for the upper middle class who are aspiring to give their children the cultural credentialism of the elite. You write that the ship sailed along routes protected by the US military, enabled by US commerce and financed and legitimised by US networks of moral empire. Yeah, this is the thing, isn't it, when you travel, that you don't really see the world. You see the world that is manufactured and presented to you. And the world that was presented to these students was one that, as you say, was shaped by American power. So they got off the ship and a hundred cars met them and picked them up and they drove them around Hawaii or Hong Kong and they were greeted by a welcoming committee comprised of local leaders. Uh, They were shadowed by the US military presence, by the um, US Navy. Uh, They met people who ran Standard Oil in the ports um, and they had the power of the American dollar to purchase haircuts at the American barbers and to go to the YMCA and get their um, eggs on and fries. How were the students selected or did they self-select? There was an application process and I think initially it was a rel- relatively rigorous one. But as the date for departure got closer and the numbers didn't quite match up to those required, um, the the standards were dropped. And this included letting women in, <laughs> as I suggested, and also a few uh, other educational tourists, people who are a bit older than students but who were needed to make up the final numbers. Now, you write that they were riding this wave of uh, post-war internationalism and American prosperity. That's right. America came out of the First World War um, rich and powerful, but it hadn't yet established the global dominance that it would in the second part of the century. And so what's remarkable about this voyage is that the student, you see the American power in the state of formation. You see students beginning to explore and to learn often from British imperialism. They read Rudyard Kipling. They read Alfred Northcliffe as a kind of Bible for how to go about being imperialists. You see them dressing in white pith helmets and, and uh, cotton suits. Um, and they do a lot of comparison and contrast. They're thinking about how American empire is taking place in the Philippines. They're comparing it to a British empire in India. They visit the Dutch East Indies and they even go to French Algeria. And all the time they're thinking, what does an American dominant presence in the world look like? Tell me about James Lowe. 
James Lowe was an idealist and I think in the end quite a bumbling and inept administrator. But he had the idea as a graduate student to link experience with education. And this was an idea that was in the air at the time in the 1890s. It was uh, John Dewey and um, William James. William James was in fact his doctoral supervisor at Harvard in the 1890s. And when James Lowe finally got a job at NYU in the early years of the century, he really created a whole suite of new kinds of education in which students would learn on location in places like the Municipal Building in New York, Grand Central Station, Wall Street. So students would learn from people who had become experts and practitioners within these new vocational um, fields uh, and that would be the foundation of their learning, not what was written in books. And this then became the foundation of an experiment that he ran in 1913 to take students overseas. So he ran the first study abroad program in America that gave university credit for travel experience. And it ran again in 1914. Now, to give Lowe's educational views some context, the interwar period was a time of, well, reconsideration of many things, wasn't it? That's right. American universities had... um, really come up against a kind of impasse. If you do away with the classical curriculum and you let students pick subjects for themselves, how do you know when they've got enough for a degree? So the university credit system, the credit academic credits were the way through this. And what Lowe did was he awarded university credits for experience in place experience, as I said, in the municipal building or out doing engineering um, courses on the railways. And in the, in the 1920s and 30s, this was seen as a valuable and viable way of restructuring higher education. And in fact, it saved New York University from going bankrupt, really, twice over. Um, but as the, a decade uh, progressed, universities started to realise that their business model relied on having control over what was taught. So it was professors in the classroom that needed to... Um, determine what counted as educational, not sundry people out in the workplaces of New York City. We're talking about a time when uh, luxury round-the-world cruises had only recently begun, and it's not that much after Titanic. No, that's right. It's only in 1923 that round-the-world cruises begin. And I think we have to think about the context of um, American immigration restriction to understand why this is really important. As you'll remember, the shipping companies, the transatlantic shipping companies, made their money from bringing poor immigrants from Europe, from Southern and Eastern Europe to the United States. But when the United States introduced immigration restriction in 1921, that business model completely collapsed. So the shipping companies needed to find a new business or they they were going to go bankrupt. And so what they did is they turned to university students. They converted their steerage accommodation into um, what was called tourist third class and they filled it with students to launder its reputation. And so what the floating university really was was an exercise by the Holland America line in making a big global splash with all these students to advertise a whole new business which was third-class travel, cheap travel from America to Europe that would save their their bacon. I can't wait to see the movie version directed by James Cameron. (laughs) Now, this venture was controversial from the start, wasn't it? That's right. 
New York University had initially backed the whole venture, but it pulled out only a few months before. Why? Well, there was a little bit of him, or it thought there might be a little bit of impropriety that Lowe was, uh, had organised a company to organise the visas and the accommodation, and he was president of that company that was profiting oh, right. from the trip. Uh, but, um, but also I think more importantly, they realised that study abroad was dangerous. It threatened their business model, which was to control who got to know in the 20th century. So it was universities that wanted to determine what counted as knowledge, not students on a ship travelling the world. That was that was that was dangerous, and they that was uh, sailing out of their control. <laughs> now the idea, the ideal, was that the students would become world-minded. That's right. Through being in the world and through experimenting in the world, Professor Lowe thought that students would come to become citizens of the world. You've got a wonderful collection of, uh, of passengers I'd like to discuss. I haven't got time to do more than a, a few of them. But my favourite, I think, is uh, Howard Marshall. Yes, Howard Marshall may not um, ring a bell to many listeners, but um, he married someone called Anna Nicole Smith, which might. <laughs> <laughs> Howard Marshall began life on the Floating University as a Quaker, as a student who was a Quaker and a soccer player. And he marries a former Playmate of the Year. That's right. Anna Nicole Smith ends up, yes, at the end of his life, he marries um, Anna Nicole Smith, the Playmate of the Year. In the interim, he becomes a 16% shareholder in Coke Industries. So in if you want an example of how the Floating University is fashioning the class, the elite, that would go on to uh, run the American century... Howard Marshall is it. He didn't like being beaten, particularly in sport. That's right. Howard Marshall was one of the soccer stars of the floating university, but their team kept getting beaten in basically every port that they docked in, especially by Egypt, where he was completely trounced. And this led to a momentary crisis of confidence from Howard Marshall, who wondered how this might reflect the political situation, how America's defeat on the sporting field might suggest it was a little vulnerable in the global domain as well. But, Tamsin, these sporting experiences are good examples of the uh, cultural interactions that didn't play so well. Yeah. They lost soccer in Honolulu. They lost baseball in the Philippines and basketball in Shanghai. <laughs> they were completely trounced wherever they went. Uh, and I don't think they were, the, that elite Americans expected white bodies to be beaten by their colonial inferiors on the sporting field. And I think it was just a sign of the um, creeping doubt and the sorts of uncertainty that permeated what was otherwise a confident presence on the world stage. Let's now introduce another student called uh, Lynn Townsend-White. Lynn Townsend-White uh, will be well known to anybody who researches climate change. He was a student on the Floating University and afterwards he went on to uh, complete a PhD in medieval history. But in 1966 he gave a speech in which he identified the climate crisis and said that Western science might in fact be at fault. The processes of extraction that Western science had 
led and developed were not going to be the solution to the very problem they had created. And he advocated for a form of uh, identification with nature and with the world that might see humans as part of the environment and not separate to it. And in that way, he really echoed the philosophy of the founder of the voyage, uh, James Lowe. And I think he can be set against Howard Marshall. These are two ways of thinking about America's, uh, the consequences of the voyage in the second half of the century. And a third way from uh, Francis Chance. Francis Chance. He was again another student and he came from Centralia, Missouri. And when he returned home, Centralia, Missouri is, as it sort of says, in the middle of America, in the middle of Missouri, uh, you couldn't get farther away from an ocean. And when he returned home, he built a remarkable garden that is now listed on the National um, Historical Register. And it was it provided a replica of many of the places the students had visited on board. And this is a charming story, isn't it's, it? It's a lovely story. And there are these beautiful pictures which look exactly like some of the Japanese Tory gardens, but there they are in Missouri. And he hoped that students from the local school and others visiting might come to those gardens and have an experience of the world that was a little like that that he had on board the university. Was the floating university deemed a failure at the time? It was resoundingly criticised and ridiculed. The stories of students misbehaving in the press, the drunken um, accounts, the three babies were born at the end of the cruise, Philip. Uh, these were all signs that education hadn't really happened, or so the newspapers well, said. there was a form of education going on, <laughs> clearly. Well, that was exactly I mean, the <laughs> argument made by everyone on board. What counts as education? Is it marks on a page or is it something much deeper? Uh, and certainly almost unanimously, the students on, on the voyage describe this as one of the turning points of their lives. So we have to sort of ask ourselves, I think, against whose criteria was success and failure being um, assessed? Until you came along, I'd never heard of this and uh, I doubt that any of the listeners have ever heard of it. Why is it so little known? It's a really good question. I think in some ways um, it challenged too much the ways academic historians thought uh, as a consequence of this, this voyage, experience was exiled to the edges of the university uh, story rather than placed in the middle of it. Ah, Tamsin, what a wonderful yarn. Well, stories within stories. I've been talking to the wonderful Tamsin Peach about her book, the Floating University, Experience, Empire and the Politics of Knowledge. It's uh, published by the University of Chicago Press. Tamsin is an Associate Professor and Director of the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.